Tonight's talk is on um, uh, a pocket dharma. The dharma in a nutshell, core principles of the Buddha's teaching uh, put as succinctly as I basically can, knowing that uh, the Buddha Dharma is a vast, enormous set of teachings that the Buddha gave over a period of roughly 50 years. And there are thousands upon thousands of lessons or teachings in it. And so there's no way to in any in any sense adequately represent vastness and the brilliant insights found therein but my job is to simply try to carve out for you some of the some of the most fundamental insights by the buddha some 2500 years ago in the hopes that these insights will be useful especially uh, in the dramatic and unstable times that we live in. And so there's no really better way to introduce the teachings, uh, the Dharma, the insights of the Buddha, in than other, other than the Four Truths, sometimes referred to as the Four Noble Truths, essentially the four basic grounding insights around which all of the Buddha's teachings can be located within. The Buddha said many times that all he taught was the cause of suffering and the liberation, how to be liberated from suffering. And foundation of all of his teachings were in one, presenting a problem, and then two, presenting the solution to the problem. Some uh, people who have written about the Buddha like to say this was a form of uh, a kind of a medical diagnosis, uh, noting what the issues were, and then identifying a solution to those issues. And certainly for those of you who've listened to my talks over the years, all of my talks since uh, for the last 16 years have always uh, employed this basic framework or this basic underlying underlying pattern, which is to first uh, talk about some issue or challenge we have to deal with and why it's important, and then how we would go about addressing it. And for the Buddha, that issue is called suffering, otherwise in early Pali, the language of the Buddha's time, uh, the word would be dukkha. So I'm going to just give us a broad strokes of the four noble or the four truths, and hopefully it will explain the nature of suffering and the Buddha's path of addressing it. The first truth 
is uh, often uh, misrepresented in the West. Very often people will say that the first truth was that life is suffering. That's not in any way an accurate uh, representation of what the Buddha taught. Uh, the best way we could summarize the first truth is that life can be difficult and at times emotionally distressing. Uh, in the famous teaching, he says, birth, aging, death, sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair are distressing. Being separated from the loved is distressing. Not getting what one wants is distressing emotionally painful. So we might want to notice here that the Buddha is not only listing physical pain of sickness and aging, but he's also talking about a different kind of pain as well, which is the emotional pain he lists in sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, being separated from the love and... Uh, uh, not getting what one wants. This makes sense given the fact that we are a tribal species, a, series, a species of pack animals. Survival strength boils down to our ability to bond, and human beings rely on each other for what's called emotion regulation, which means on our own in isolation, we are incapable of over a period of time regulating our emotions. Effective, uh, intimate human bonds, the only way we effectively regulate our emotional state back down into any kind of well-being or functioning. Another, when the Buddha says not getting what one wants is distressing, it's not just, you know, that we're a bunch of essentially grown-up children wanting things, and then when we don't get it, we get all um, uptight and upset. It's a broader idea than that. Human beings, due to the fact we are most conscious in left hemispheres, we want to know how the world will play out. We are a species that likes to plan that likes to live towards the future, that likes to have a sense uh, that we can make meaning or sense out of our experience. And so in times such as these, when it seems that very little is known, for example, uh, not only the events that are going on with climate change and the events of social Unre understandable social unrest, but even the fact that we are in the embryonic stages of uh, dictatorship, where we don't even know if we'll have a fair election coming up and if uh, the person who loses will actually acknowledge that they lose. So living with such unknowns is a certainly a form of emotional pain, because again, the left brain likes to be able to have certainty, a meaning, an ability to plan, have a strong concept of how the future will look like. But right now, in the time of novel pathogens and 
uh, all that we are facing, we don't have many knowns. This Buddhist insight that in life there will be negative emotional experiences is certainly in line with contemporary therapeutic modalities. Negative affects such as shock, loneliness, fear, and shame are adaptive. They alert us to changes in our environment and they orient us to how we uh, need to go about acknowledging these changes and uh, they give us impulses to survive. So fear is an adaptive response to threatening stimuli. It urges us to seek shelter. Shame is what we experience when we've had a diminishment in our status, our tribal status. We avoid eye contact, and eye contact and we withdraw until our tribal status can be restored. Shock is how we respond to unexpected events. So the Buddha is not saying in the first truth, when he's talking about sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, and such, he's not saying that these affects or emotions are mistakes. He's saying that these are inevitable. All of the factors he lists in the first noble truth, the first truth is essentially what are the basic components of any life. There will be birth, aging, sickness, sorrow, lamentation, grief. We'll be separated from those we love. That will happen, and we will not get what we want. And there's no way you can organize your life without experiencing those. Those are universal. Now, the second truth is where the Buddha starts to talk about suffering as opposed to emotional pain. For the Buddha, emotional pain, the sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, we could say that these are uh, part of the very fabric of being human beings. And there's maybe if you are the most regulated human being in the world, you might experience less, uh, the less extremes of emotional pain, but pain is the what the Buddha calls the first arrow. It's inevitable. It's not something that we add to life. It's a given. The second truth is that suffering is born of our craving to escape our emotional pain and our physical pain. So suffering is different from emotional pain. Suffering is... Uh, the kind of anxious distress that we put ourselves through and the disappointments and frustrations when we try to live in such a way that we will not be subject to the inevitable frustrations and disappointments of a life. Some of us, for example, will try to be, will try to hide the fact that we're aging through plastic surgery and uh, some of us will try to hide the fact that we are in pain. Some of us will try to repress and conceal our emotional wounds. And none of these strategies, of course, work. The more we try to escape the inevitable experiences of life, not just the birth, aging, deaths, 
but the sorrow, lamentation, grief, despair, the being separated from the love, the not getting what one wants. The more we try to somehow uh, make ourselves the exception to the rule, that resistance to the inevitable is for the Buddha what causes the greatest distress of life. So I want to say this again, suffering is not inevitable, pain is. Suffering is the attempt to escape, to numb ourselves, to run away from the inevitable. The Buddha broke down suffering into three big groups. The first is what he called bhavatana, craving for a future state where we will have no pain whatsoever. This keeps us busily rushing through our lives, unaware of the richness of any present moment, orienting ourselves towards imaginary futures. Invariably, that statement, when I, uh, is an indication of that. When I retire, when I move to the country, when I get married, when I get my degree, when I get a different job, when I uh, move into a bigger apartment, when I move to Europe, then I will be happy. So essentially, uh, the first form of craving that causes suffering is this idea that there's always some future moment that's unavailable to us now, that wherein we'll, be, we'll have the tools to be truly happy. And this, of course, keeps us then in a place where we are unwilling to acknowledge all the resources available to us, and we are constantly trying to repress, suppress awareness of um, what is actually happening, trying to get through. And this keeps us in this constant stage of samsara or, or busily moving through our life, never stopping. And if you can't stop, you can't relax. If you can't relax, you cannot experience peace of mind. The second form of craving is vibhavatana. Uh, bhavatana is craving a future state free of uh, any experience of pain. Vibhavatana is the opposite. It's craving to experience nothing, numbness. This is the desire, some even would say, to for death or to end one's entire conscious experience. Of course, many people act out on this impulse, addictions to opiates, addictions to numbing routines, spending in an or inordinate amount of time watching numbing TV shows, or shut down in depression as a way to escape our pain. Depression, by the way, is not an affect, it's not an emotion. Like anxiety, depression is an escape from affects, feelings, emotions. It's a way to essentially dissociate, to uh, disconnect from both our internal experience and even to be aware of the world around us. So that's the second form of craving. And the third form of craving is kamatana, which is craving a lasting external pleasure that will alleviate our stress and painful feelings 
and painful affects so that we don't have to feel them at all. Essentially, an escape of our pain by consuming. Uh, this is the Buddha's theory of essentially addictive compulsive behaviors. Uh, he outlines it not only in this noble truth, but throughout the Dharma in the Paticca Samapada, which is essentially when we are triggered by experiences in the world or events that remind us of previous painful events, we experience painful feelings. These painful feelings, by the way, are very often unconscious. We're not even aware of them, but they're subtle contractions in our stomach, tension in the chest, a jumpiness in the awareness, a sudden shallowness in the breath. And these painful feelings, what the Buddha called dukkha vedana, lead us to crave to get rid of these feelings. And what do we crave? We crave objects, situations, behaviors that will create good feelings. So the most basic human response to experiencing emotional pain is to seek out something that will make us feel good. And I think we can all relate to that. That's basically still the, one of the dominant theories of addiction is that it's essentially a stress response, a re reaction to um, emotional pain. And that we seek sources of dopamine that will lift our mood up for a short time so that we won't have to feel the necessary, unavoidable pains that happen now and then in life. The Buddha, in one wonderful sutta, the Loka Vipata says something like, the world spins back and forth, blown about by eight worldly winds. There's wealth and scarcity, there's, um, fame and uh, obscurity, there's praise and blame, there's pleasure and pain. And when we chase after one, we inevitably experience the other. So if we're always chasing fame, then in constantly fixating on how popular we are, we will by necessity, therefore experience more pain when we don't feel popular. If we chase after wealth, even the people who accumulated vast amounts of wealth, by chasing after it, they also will at times constantly view themselves as living with scarcity. When people chase after praise, they inevitably experience blame. And in chasing after praise, it makes blame all the more painful. This is the Idipakiyata, the Buddha's basic insight that whatever we chase to end emotional pain, whatever we chase creates its very opposite. And this is interesting because in postmodern theory, Jacques Derrida and so many other philosophers showed just that, that whatever we try to clutch, cling to, chase after, uh, reify, invariably means we will experience the shadow of that very thing. Moreover, chasing after anything, uh, the moment we reach the goal, 
the dopamine dissipates almost immediately. That's one of the cruelest things about natural selection is that it didn't, it doesn't want our species to be happy. It simply wants our species to survive and to reproduce, to pass down our genes. So if we were lastingly happy after we achieved something, there would be no more motivation for us to go out and achieve more, accumulate more tools, more shelter, more sex, more resources. So uh, we evolved to be a species that only gets a very short burst of pleasure after we uh, consume something, we purchase something, and then it dissipates. And then the stress, the underlying emotional wound, the negative feelings return, and we're back in the middle of it. In contemporary clinical psychology, this is known as the hedonic treadmill. Due to our lack of lasting rewards, our ability to habituate to circumstances, after any positive experience, we will generally return to the mood or the emotional state that happened before that experience. That's the hedonic treadmill. So let's just um, summarize what, we, what we've covered up to now. In the first truth, there are events in life, separation from the love, aging, sickness, death, not getting what we want, that will trigger painful feelings, negative emotional states or affects. And these emotional pains are inevitable. But two, the suffering doesn't come so much from those pains. It comes from our attempt to escape our pain by rushing towards the future and not turning to face and work with and be with our emotional states by trying to numb ourselves compulsively or by trying to race after, chase after sensual pleasure only again and again and again to be frustrated. Anything that we chase after will invariably pass and fade and we'll be right back where we started, only we'll be more frustrated. So the third truth is that there's an end to all this needless suffering. Again, not pain. The Buddha is very clear to say he can't promise a life without pain, but he can promise a life where we significantly diminish the suffering and the needless, the needless frustrations and disappointments, the needless gut punches, the needless uh, disappointments of when we cling to something or someone or some situation and each time we latch onto it, we wind up hurt and wounded. The end to suffering the Buddha teaches comes from the willingness to put aside our craving, our craving for an imaginary future where we believe we won't be subject to pain you know, when we retire or something like that. We put aside that fantasy. We put aside our addictions to numbing behaviors and to sensual pleasures that dissipate quickly. And we, in turn, embrace what is unconditionally 
available to help us ease our pain and release our suffering. So the third truth is basically we've got to let go of some of our most ingrained compulsive behaviors if we are to have any chance to lead a life with less suffering. And this brings us to the final truth, which is the path to liberation from suffering, where the Buddha tells us what is unconditionally available to us in every moment in our life that cannot be taken away and can help us alleviate our suffering. So rather than give you the full eightfold path and talk about all of the factors in it, uh, it's quite um, uh, more useful, I think, and uh, it's also commonly practiced that we simply break it down into the three basic insights of the Eightfold Path, which all of the factors fit into one of these three insights. The first overall factor insight is the importance of wisdom, which is essentially understanding the first three great truths, that in life, emotional pain is not personal, it's universal, it happens. We all will experience old age sickness and death. None of that's our fault. We all will at times experience loss of the loved. That's in human nature, that's in the nature of all beings. And we all will experience not getting what we want, especially in times such as these. The wisdom is knowing that these are universal experiences and not personal. So we immediately can be alleviated by this pattern of constantly embellishing or framing the difficult experiences in life with, this is all about me. Ending this tendency of taking the pains personally, experiencing dealing with our emotional pain, but not draping it in the sense of what have I done? Why is this happening to me? Acknowledging the universal conditions, or at least the transpersonal conditions, I should say, of pain. The second insight or group is virtue, which basically boils down to we're a tribal species. We depend on others for emotional regulation and we are always subject to, I would say, um, the uh, emotion contagion. Other people's affects affect us. The quality of our tribal bonds invariably cause either uplift or can create mood plummets depending upon how well, how healthy our interpersonal life is. Buddha notes having, let me see where it notes is having good friends, one will be held accountable for their behavior, will have support, will stay persistent in abandoning our addictive behaviors, and will achieve peace and awakening. Countless studies show direct correlation between our tribal bonds and our well-being and our the level of our baseline subjective happiness not just studies by Andrew and Wiley and Gwyndon and et al. 
so many countless studies, but um, the basic insights of so many great positive psychologists, such as Ed Diner, Martin Seligman, Sandra Lyubomorsky, uh, Jonathan Haidt, even the Max Planck Institute, one of the great institutes of clinical psychology, uh, had a huge study which showed that uh, subjective well-being and happiness was the result of socially engaged pursuits. The sole basis they found of subjective well-being across all cultures uh, were the quality of our social connections. So in the Eightfold Path, the Buddha, the Buddha, the Dharma basically says that to be experience peace, we have to dedicate ourselves to not causing harm to other beings. That any degree of harmfulness or harmful attempts activates core emotional wounds distress, isolation, loneliness, aggression, and it only creates more emotional pain. It doesn't alleviate anything. The, again, the Buddha's basic insight here is that if we want to have positive tribal uh, bonds, we have to at least start by refraining from causing harm, from stealing, from any form of, of uh, abusive speech from uh, any form of sexual harm, physical harm, and even intoxication, the Buddha viewed as a form of harm, not just to other people, but to ourself. Lastly, the third significant factor of the Eightfold Path is a dedication to internal awareness. Human beings, as we move through life, tend to be very exteroceptive, always focusing on the world around us. We tend to be very cognitive in that we create and generate a lot of thoughts about the world around us. But we're not particularly interoceptive, which means aware of what's going on internally. And unfortunately, as we're reactive beings, we're always at risk of being triggered by people, places, and things in our environment. These people and places and things might actually act unskillfully towards us, or they might remind us of previous emotional wounding events and trigger negative feelings. And if we are not aware of those feelings, they will invariably take control of our behaviors and initiate craving and craving behaviors as we've heard already create the needless suffering of life. The Buddha's great escape, he noted in the Paticca Samapada, is the only way out of this cycle of painful triggering events, create negative feelings which create craving for pleasure and and new states of being, which create more suffering. The only way out of that is if we break the chain right at feelings. And instead of blindly focusing our awareness on the world around us and be driven by our desire to get rid of the negative feelings by chasing after sensual pleasures, the only way out is to maintain our awareness 
onto what's going on internally, our feelings, staying, observing the feelings, watching as they rise and watching as they dissipate and not acting before the feelings, the initial emotional impact has been noted and has been resolved. In this way, we actually liberate ourselves from unconscious life, from the trance of simply being driven around these underlying negative affects that we're never fully aware of, that just initiate compulsive behaviors, food, TV, shopping, workaholism, busyness, uh, constant need for stimulation, uh, constant need for numbing. It's only by and through internal awareness that we have any ability to override the automatic life and claim any form of free will. The last part of internal awareness and the, the, one of the most important factors of the Buddha's path to liberation is the ability to soothe ourselves, to self-soothe through what's called concentration, samadhi. In today's Buddhist landscape, very many people constantly talk about mindfulness which is that ability to watch feelings and the breath and thoughts and moods arise and pass. But if that's all there is, simply observing and not acting out on our, on our feelings all the time, but just being with them, if that's all there was, the path would be very dry, very bereft of any joy, very unrewarding. But that's not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught that to buoy ourselves, to lift ourselves, to help recharge ourselves, to help uh, soothe ourselves, we not only practice observing feelings and moods arising and passing, but we also have another practice called concentration, where we focus our awareness on... Um, pleasant objects and pleasant experiences. And we hold our awareness and we train ourselves to come back again and again and again to that which is soothing and that which is um, alleviating. It can be pleasant sounds, pleasant images. It could be chanting pleasant phrases. It can be finding and cultivating a peaceful breath maintaining our awareness on that. It can be finding a pleasant sensation in the body and spreading it through, suffusing it through our body. It can be finding um, an external object that's pleasant, pleasant to look at and resting our gaze upon it and relaxing into that. In short, if we simply practice mindfulness, just reducing our path to our spiritual practice to simply being aware of our internal experience and not causing harm in our life and having the wisdom to know that pain is inevitable in life. It's not personal. Those three 
great insights are fundamentally important, but if we don't have any way to cultivate internal ease, then we will essentially over time have a joyless, rather grim uh, spiritual practice. And that's certainly not what the Buddha taught. The Buddha taught there's ways to alleviate our suffering, our suffering and even some of our pain if we know how to focus the mind skillfully. So now to conclude tonight's talk, I'm gonna lead us on an ancient 2,500 year old concentration meditation. And we're going to be focusing on cultivating states of ease, bliss, cultivating a reward state in our practice. So hopefully uh, right now you can find a comfortable seat, a comfortable place to lie down if you like. And um, I should note, by the way, as always, um, if you'd like to support my work, uh, Dharma Punks with an XNYC is the Venmo, and that's the website where the PayPal is. Everything I do is supported entirely by donation just from practitioners. So, uh, if you can't obviously afford to support, that's okay. Many people right now are financially struggling to say the least. So, but if you do have the means to support uh, my Buddhist pastoral work, I'm grateful. So let's dive right in now to the meditation. And what we're gonna do is close our eyes. And we're just going to first settle into the body. And to do that, we need to set an intention to essentially reel back in our awareness from the world around us, from exteroception. And we need to bring that awareness that's usually looking around for opportunities or threats, that kind of low-level hypervigilant state. And we want to bring that awareness into the body. And just doing that soothes very often for many our state of being. When we're entirely externally based in our attention, we are subject to so many different factors outside of our influence. Sometimes just being internally aware can be such a refuge from overwhelming conditions, situations, places, events. So bringing the awareness within and let's just find uh, a sensation that is topmost, a sense of the sensations roughly associated with the top of the head. And then just bring your awareness there and just see if there's any way you can relax that area. 
sometimes breathing into or just sending a very simple note to ourselves, just release, relax, let go. Bringing awareness to the forehead, trying to release any tension or furrowing of the brow. Imagine your awareness is a form of a soothing massage that could release any tightness there. And then bringing attention to the micro muscles around the eyes. And just see if we can relax them and just allow the eyes to settle. They no longer have to busily jump back and forth, scanning the horizon, the environment. There's nothing to look at right now with our eyes closed. So just encourage the eyes to settle, to relax into the eye sockets, floating into warm pools, relaxing any tension in the micro muscles around the mouth. If we can, extending the width of the mouth so that the corners are, the mouth isn't tight. Very often an unforced sort of quasi smile, a Mona Lisa smile, if that's available, is very soothing. But of course, if our present mood doesn't make that available, don't try to force anything at all, just Try to relax simply the micro muscles around the mouth and then continue with any clenching in the jaw, any tightness. And then continuing down the, to the throat, noticing if there's any contraction Breathing into the throat, softening, seeing if you can release any tightness there. Lifting up, if you like, I like to do this, lifting up the shoulders, rotating them back, and then dropping them to open up the chest. Breathing fully, inhaling through the nose, filling up the chest. And then as we release very slowly, let go of the breath and allow the, the areas of the heart center to feel released. Bringing awareness down now to the abdominal area Breathing into that, so when you breathe in through the nose or mouth, allowing the, or encouraging the belly to distend as far as it can, and then as we breathe out slowly, releasing the muscles in the abdomen, long exhalations, releasing the abdomen, toning the vagal nerve, Secreting acetylcholine, diminishing the heart and respiration rates and the 
lowering our blood pressure, all through the same practice. When we accomplish all this through simply long exhalations, abdominal breathing, very gentle awareness, then we immediately start this significant process of self-soothing. And then just continue for a brief period, just going down sit bones, buttocks, legs, feet, just releasing any other parts of the body we haven't covered. Sometimes clenching the legs and releasing, clenching the toes, releasing, making a fist, releasing. Very often releases the action potential stored in the muscle groups and allows the muscles to relax. And just reminding ourselves that right now we don't have anything to do, nowhere to go. This moment, nothing to take care of other than ourselves. Our sole objective is to land in our internal experience this very moment. Not racing anywhere else, not giving into the craving of believing there's some better time in the future where we'll have more resources. There's only now where we could possibly achieve any form of release or even degree of liberation. There is no other time than now. And then bringing our attention to the breath and the basic instructions of all the core Buddhist suttas on meditation is just to know whether you're breathing in or out, long or short. And right now, am I breathing in or am I breathing out? Right now is my breath long or short. And if we can incline gently without too much force, the breath to be longer, we'll find that that will invariably relax. If on the other hand, we are tired, groggy, then breathing in short for a while will wake us up, initiate mobilization state.
So at this point, I'd like you to locate either a very pleasant sensation in your body, perhaps for many of us, very often people report that the sensations in the palms of their hands, or any other place in the body that feels pleasant. And just bring your attention to that pleasant sensation and rest your awareness on it. If on the other hand, you don't, you cannot locate a pleasant sensation, then either find a soothing sound or soothing set of sounds, a fan, sound of distant cars passing by or wind or rain or any soothing sounds and just rest your awareness on that. Or as a third possibility, you could open your eyes and find a soothing object in your environment, a pleasant object to look at and rest your gaze on that. And we're not pinning our gaze to the pleasant 
stimuli with any force. We're not trying to nail down our awareness. We're just again and again and again returning to rest our awareness on that which is pleasant. A pleasant sensation in the body, a pleasant sound, a pleasant external sight, or it even could be a pleasant image that we can generate, a visualization that we can uh, create of a place where we feel safe, or a situation wherein we feel safe, and just rest our awareness And while you rest your awareness on the sea, if you can continue releasing any tension, in any other part of the body, pendulate your awareness from the pleasant sensation to the painful, breathe in, soften, Relax, knead through any difficult sensations and then return to the pleasant. Just once again, resting our awareness again and again on that which is soothing and pleasant. And then uh, if it's possible, see if you can spread the sensation through your body. Like you're kneading water through dough, spreading the pleasant sensation somewhere to the surrounding sensory regions around it. Or if it's a, a sound or an image, just see if you can bring your attention closer to that which is pleasant, so that which is pleasant becomes so much larger in your awareness, so that that which is pleasant begins to consume, fill up all that you are aware of, and just relax fully into whatever resource of ease that's available to you.
The key to this practice is just relaxing, letting go of any inclination to judge how well we're doing it. If at any time it's helpful, simply add a very soft, slowly repeated phrase May I be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. May all beings be happy, peaceful, free of stress and suffering. Or even simpler, just softly repeating, I love you, keep going. No effort, just gently returning again and again to that which is pleasing and soothing.
So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. And when you hear the sound, please take your time, slowly bring your awareness to a place where you're aware of both the world around you as well as the world inside of you. The Merits of meditation are all too quickly uh, put aside, dropped, extinguished if we simply bring our awareness and overbalance it to simply uh, vigilantly observing the outside world. It's through a balanced ongoing mindfulness that we uh, live more skillfully, more aware, less automatic driven lives. (laughs) 